I ran in it, closed the porter shitter door, and while I was like turning, I slipped on shit. My MOS is uh, 31 Bravo MP. Welcome to the Fight or Die podcast. This is Karen Blakely, joined by Adam Howarth, Will Atkinson, and Nick O'Neill. And today we are joined by an awesome human being named Rachel Banash. Did I say your last name right? No, that's a Damn. Go ahead, you say it. It's Bannock. Bannock. Damn, I was Bannock. really off. Yeah, I like romanticized okay. it, I feel like. You did, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to church it up there, Dirk. Yeah. Uh, so Rachel is actually joining us from Ukraine. Um, so how is it like in Ukraine with this whole COVID thing? Is it about the same as the States? It is. It is. I would yeah, say there's a little less hoarding, but other than that, yeah, it's pretty similar. And you're also on quarantine. Yes. 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 <laughs> because you went on a trip to, I forget where you went now. Where was it? And you were Prague. on the bus? Prague. Yep. Yeah. So tell us about what happened when you guys tried to go out and how you got brought back. Yeah, so uh, we had a uh, pass that was granted to us, and they were kind enough to set up this trip, this MWR trip. And so we get on our bus, and we were heading to Prague, and we get to Prague. And then uh, that evening, there was an announcement uh, that the EU was going to close borders. So we had to we got to stay for a couple hours, sleep in a really nice hotel, and uh, hop back on the bus and headed back on to the old Ukraine. And now you're stuck inside for two weeks, uh-huh. right? Are you, what, yeah. what day are you at now? Uh, so we are at day 14 now. 14. Congratulations, you don't have it. <laughs> We went, we went from quarantine to now we are upgraded to um, self-isolation. And uh, yeah. So, Wait, so kind of an upgrade, but not really. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into um, your history and kind of like how you got into the military and your journey so far, because you still are in the National Guard. Um, okay. So... Where are you from and what led you to joining the military? Yeah, uh, so I was uh, born and raised in Stevens Point. Um, I would say small-ish town, a college town for sure. So a lot of uh, passerbys, passer-throughs. I was raised by just my mom, uh, so single parent. And uh, I I don't know, ever since a young age, I like craved adventure, wanted to get out, see the world, uh, you know, and I had, a, I, was, I was creative. I, uh, you know, I experimented with a lot of things when I was really, uh, really young and uh, Stevens Point really just couldn't contain me as a person. So, um, <clears throat> so I decided to, uh, I got in a little bit of trouble. Let me back that up a little bit. Got in a little bit of trouble. I <laughs> uh, went to a program called the the Challenge Academy. I don't know if any of you oh, guys yeah. yeah. And uh, so after that, I got a little taste of that military life, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And 
pretty much it was the only way I thought I'd get around the world. So, or at least that's what they promised me, you know, those recruiters. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Right now. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. So I joined up, uh, I joined when I was 17 and I shipped right when I turned 18. And I did uh, initial contract was eight years. Then I decided to do four and four. So four active, four IRR. And uh, from there, I, uh, for my active, it was pretty much mostly just deployments. Um, I had, uh, you know, the, you the infantry, basic training. I did it at uh, Leonard Wood, actually, which is ironic because I uh, am an MP and that's home of the MPs. Um, but at the time when I enlisted, I was uh, munitions. So I was 89 Bravo. So you, there you were in Stevens Point and you decided to like, Shrug those chains off, go explore. What what time period was that? That was uh, 04 I enlisted, and then I started my contract in 05, like January of 05. And was that like right after high school for you, or had the Challenge Academy kind of changed your timeline a little bit? Yeah, the, it just bumped it up a little bit. But yeah, it was relatively similar. I would have still joined in the same time frame if I had graduated from high school. So I so did you get your GED or your HSED? Yep, it's uh, the high school equivalency is what it ended up being. Sure, yeah. My brother, he didn't do the Challenge Academy, but he ended up with a similar certification in lieu of a okay. traditional high, high school diploma. What yeah. got you referred to the Challenge Academy, if you're comfortable sharing that? And what oh, was yeah, that experience? No. Like, how long was it? Uh, so it was six months, and honestly, it was – pretty up there with basic training as far as like how hardcore. Uh, so obviously quite a bit longer than basic training being mm -hmm. six months. Um, males mandatorily had to be bald. Females had to have like these god awful butch cuts. Ugh, they're oh, awful. Nice. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you all What do you mean like same. shaved head or, or what, what do you mean butch uh, cut? Like, like mm, kind of like if somebody just sat in a chair like and your younger sibling came up with scissors and just hacked it all off. Yeah. Is it a haircut oh, mark or something like that? What was that? Is it a haircut that will allow you to complain to a manager? Or yeah. Oh, God. yeah. I left. I left in tears. Mm. <laughs> I was mortified. <laughs> I think we've stumbled upon like the reason for all the Karen grief in the world is just they're truly unsatisfied with their haircuts. <laughs> I am. I am quite satisfied with my haircut. Will thank you. And you, bring, you, you just, you just have like very specific Karen specific grief so <laughs> you're 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 singular among Karens what I'm trying to say thank you I I'm a little concerned with this whole lockdown thing especially with the one that Rachel's on as far as extends to that point because at that point my beard will just continue to grow because we can't yeah. get into our Man, barbers right now I'm still active and every single fucking barber is closed here I'm gonna have to let my wife cut my hair we're gonna need to see photos of that Nick yeah yeah <laughs> That almost ended our marriage once. You guys see this? Can you see this? What is he showing us? I, I like your, your I, hair. Yeah, my yeah, my bad, my terrible line in my head. I tried to do a little self maintenance there. It was it was like <laughs> only moderately successful. So I'm like enjoying the unintended consequence of like having extra hair time for my hair to grow out as a, as a result of the quarantine. Like whoops. I, I should have thought about that before they shut down the barbershops. 
what else about that challenge uh, program besides the haircuts? What was it? What else for that challenge program was interesting besides the haircuts? Oh God. Uh, just the 24 seven, like creative punishments they came up with. Uh, definitely more elaborate than my basic training experiences for sure. But these punishment logs and then they had like these uh, words on them, like honesty and integrity. So every time, you know, you fuck up or make a mistake you're now lifting these you know logs above your head and just reading them over and over and we have to like just keep repeating it was, it was kind of insane literally brainwashing yes heavy pieces of wood yeah. with what the army values or something like that pretty much yeah it was there it was the like challenge academy values but yeah they pretty much ripped them off from the army and where was that that was in uh, fort mccoy so that was fort like McCoy, my Wisconsin. first piece of military yeah yeah. Our, said, our was, uniform was like a mixture of BDUs and then like a red polo. Oh, what? This yeah. isn't your school uniform? <laughs> yeah, that was that was what we had to wear. And then if you were in like PTs, it was a red t-shirt and like really crappy gym boy shorts that were like down to your knees. Oh. Yeah. This was like no joke. I was thinking just like a second chance high school, but you're in like military school. Correct. Yeah. No, it definitely was. Yeah. I mean, they don't advertise it as a military school, but it absolutely was ran like a military school. And actually, a lot of the um, instructors, which we called them team leaders at the time, um, were actually serving in the Wisconsin National Guard. So that that's probably where they got their creativity from. Let's call it that. Did you imagine the, rec- the recruiter that has that area and he's like, hey, do you want life to get easier? Come join the military. <laughs> so when you got to basic training, then were you like, oh, okay, I, I kind of get this a little more now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was. Yeah. And I was a PT stud by then. So. Oh, yeah. So you yeah. went to Leonard Wood, which it's like, it's really, it's really weird because the more we get into your story, like mine and your stories have a lot of, uh, similar circumstances right so we joined around the same time we both yep. went to leonard wood um mm-hmm. but you were telling me at leonard wood you did like an infantry style basic training yeah i was uh an alpha 210 infantry bravo platoon and uh yeah it was very oh, sorry uh yeah i mean they ran it just like an infantry basic training it was, it was pretty interesting was it, uh, but it was a mixed basic training, right? So it was male and female, like how many females were Correct. In? Yep. Yep. And uh, for us, it wasn't OSET. So like MP, like you were saying, yours was OSET and ours was split up. So like we did basic in Leonard Wood and then we did AIT in uh, Alabama, our Redstone Arsenal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very sorry. You had to go to Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah and, not, and again... Yeah, we were both in Alabama, so we both know it's, it's, I mean, you know, it's a different state, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Was that like a really small base down there? No, no, it was uh, relatively large. Um, and we had quite a bit of freedoms, I was surprised. Well, also it was a Marine, they had like Marines there were running around there all the time, so it'd be running past mm-hmm. in the Ranger panties. So just to make sure I'm tracking along with the timeline... You elect to go over to the Challenge Academy yep. and spend about six months there. That's at Fort yep. McCoy, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. right? You said that was like, 
cadre was Wisconsin National Guard for the most part. You called them team leaders. They were creatively yeah. kind of harass you. What time were you getting up in the morning for that oh. six months? What was your duty day like? Duty day was up anywhere between three to four. Uh, if we didn't fuck up the night prior, um, then we'd be like three or four. But if we fucked up, I mean, they'd have us all up at all hours of the night. I mean, I remember one time we were marching at like midnight with our uh, our logs walking through swamps. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So if we behaved uh, three or four, then we'd have, you know, like our chow. Uh, and their chow routine was rather strict. So very similar to the army, you know, don't talk, don't look around. But if you, but if you got caught uh, talking or looking or doing whatever, um, you would have to eat from the push-up position. So it was, uh, you only Front had one. rest? Yes. Oh yep. Yeah. Or you'd have to hold up the table, one or the other. So if all of you at the table got caught, then you'd be holding up the table while you ate. Yeah, <laughs> training you for a Saturday night uh, in the barracks eating pizza. Yeah. Off yeah. The floor. Sounds about right. So, so you wrap that up, cruise on over to basic training at Fort Leonard Wood. Yep. Unlike, unlike other MOSs there, you do split ops and end up at Redstone Arsenal in yeah. Alabama. Is that right? I've never heard of that. What was yep, that like? Yeah. Uh, it was cool. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I was, uh, like I said, uh, munition specialist. So back then, um, we're not really a thing anymore. I mean, there, we're few and far in between, but um, we learned how to inventory, clean, stock, transport, different kinds of munitions, everything from small arms to Hellfire missiles. Um, they showed us a little bit of like uh, how to detonate so we got to work with like debt core and blowing our own munitions to get rid of them. So if they're faulty or um, duds and then, um, or if they weren't like considered serviceable or in serviceable condition. Uh, and then we also learned how to do like sling load operations. Oh, wow. So it was kind of like a mixed bag. We got to do a lot of different things uh, as a munition specialist. Yeah, that's really interesting. <clears throat> I remember doing some reading on like air assault. And I don't know if anybody here ever got to go into any any of the HUA schools like that, but oh, yeah. what I encountered in, in my research was that like sling load phase, once people get past the sort of day zero initial smoke fest, like sling load phase is a big sort of academically challenging portion that causes a lot of people to wash out. So that was right. part of your AIT is pretty cool. I'd like to yeah. hear more about that if you don't, if you have anything cool to share from that time. I, I, I really don't have any cool stories. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just learned I, I did, Yeah, I, we just learned how to do it. Um, and I never really had to do sling load operations um, just because, and I'll cover this later on in you know, my stories when I talk about my deployments, but we, we just could deliver the munitions from inside of the helicopter. So we didn't have to have it uh, suspended below us. Although there were times I kind of wish it was suspended below us. And again, I'll, I'll share those later on. Yeah, you bet. So how long was AIT? Uh, 11 weeks. Cool. I really had to rack my brain there. I've been in a while. So, <laughs> so uh, aerosol school, I actually went to aerosol school, and oh, the yeah. uh, sling load was um, intense because you had to memorize exactly how to rig everything up 
for um, if it was going to be sling loaded, right? So if you yep. miss, and the test was they had, I'm sure it was probably the same for you, Rachel, but the test was they had all these stations set up and you had to go through. And if you missed a single check, you failed and then you had to come back and do it again. So that's why it was so intense. Like you had, a, and I, I want to say there was, there's at least six or eight different rigs that you had to memorize. Do you remember the number H? I don't know if that's right or not. Six. Or six. Yeah, me, it was like a normal six. Yeah, it was Pretty like a similar thing. to like EF, EFMB where like if you miss one step, you're out, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, you got – so you got a second chance um, to do it and then, you know, so you got two chances and that was it to go through the test. So, yeah. It was – I mean, it was fun though. And then you finally got to the repel phase, which was the most exciting part and really the reason that I did it. So that's why that was fun. Hey. <laughs> um. Okay, so yeah, so you got through your AIT, um, and then we were talking about how you ended up um, at your first duty station. So how did that yes. work out? Yes. Uh, so I don't know if you guys remember your wish list that you may or may not have gotten. Uh, so we were at the end of AIT, and they're like, "All right, what's your wish list?" And of course, I picked the like big glorious ones I never thought I'd actually get. But I was like, "Fuck it." So I put in for um, Alaska, Germany, and Italy. And um, I, I'm not a huge sports person, but um, our volleyball team made it into like this championship. And I really didn't want to play, but the commander was like, oh, come on, come on, play. And so I w was playing in our championship game, and I rolled my ankle. And sure as shit, the next day, we got told our wish list, and I got Alaska in an airborne slot and I was devastated because I was like well just rolled my ankle I probably shouldn't try to go you know to an airborne unit and like you know, break my ankle or something crazy um and then I told I was told well you know it's not a big deal like you'll probably have the opportunity to go again further in your career which was totally a lie uh but secondly, I got Germany. So I ended up taking Germany over Alaska. So like how excited were you? You actually got to travel the world, right? Oh, yeah. Germany. Oh. And then some, yes. Yeah. So when you first got into Germany, like what was your impression? What was Germany like? Um, you have to tell us, obviously, about all the ridiculous partying that you did in Germany. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, here I am. Uh, 18 going on 19 first time shit I'd only left the state probably a handful of times when I was young uh, so first time out of the country I was pumped you know I was like this is exactly what I wanted I was really fortunate that I actually got it um yeah and I had no idea I don't know I had no idea what to expect uh so I I come in on my flight and never really even being out of my state let alone the country I had to navigate a German airport by myself, which is very, very challenging. <laughs> and they had me flying at wee hours of the night, so nothing was open, and there wasn't really a lot of people around, and pretty much no one really spoke English, so that was kind of neat. Um, and then, Did you try uh, and learn any German before you left? Ooh, yes and no. Uh, I, I thought I could speak uh, Eines Sprechen Sie Deutsch uh, when I was drinking, 
yeah. Of course. Yeah. Right. Guten yeah. Tag. Other than that, no, I never really. A few words and phrases here and there, but uh, yeah, no, I didn't successfully learn or tackle the language. Um, but I think one of my more favorite weekends was my very first weekend in Germany. And, uh, you know, like most places, there's, you know, the hazing that goes on, you know. Welcome to Germany. You know, I get in and uh, I get put with this, what is it? Like somebody that walks you around and shows you stuff. and Your mentor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your sponsor. Slash battle buddy. Yeah. Yeah, your mandatory one. They loved it. They always loved doing that. Um, (laughs) And they're like, yeah, yeah. So they show me around the base and... I think it was like a Friday night or something. So after that, like, oh, we're going to take you out. We're going to take you out on the town. Little did I know what that meant. Yeah, it was a good time. I, uh, they took me uh, to Nuremberg. So we were, I was stationed in uh, Vilsic, actually, at the time. And that was my, that was, I was part of the 529th Ordnance Company, which is now disbanded uh, and moved. But, um, yeah, they took me out on the town. So we got on a train. That was my first time I were on a train. And we pre-gamed the whole way. Yeah. And then... Uh, uh, drinking German beer. This yes. The yep, whole time, yep. right? Okay. Yes. And, uh, and we get in and we party like rock stars. We have a, a bar that we've commandeered in Nuremberg, which is like our stomping ground, which was called the Black Shamrock at the time. Uh, I do believe it's still open, just under different management. And then, um, yeah, they get you fucked up, and they leave you with uh, 20 euros. And I woke up the next morning and to a lovely, a lovely note, and I was handcuffed underneath a bed. And uh, they left me with 20 euros, and they're like, all right, find your way back there, Joe. And so, uh, yeah, it was quite the adventure. It actually was fun. I had a blast. I feel like that, that escalated like, really quickly. There's so the much to it. <laughs> it was there's fun. So we were drinking, and now I'm handcuffed to a bed. <laughs> Where was this any citations located? in your pockets? Uh, in a hostel. In a hostel. Uh, oh. Next to the uh. Uh, next to the bar. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So go do on. You, I know. There's yeah. Like, do you know what happened? Was it ever revealed to you how you ended up handcuffed to the bed, or is it still I a mystery? Know. I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't much, too much of a story, you know, being 18, first time out of the country. I was from Wisconsin, so I thought I could drink, you Not know. That German and, beer, though. Uh, yeah, it just was a shot fest, and, you know, it kind of just, I don't know. It, it, I really don't remember much. I had to be told everything, but obviously I kind of put the pieces together when I woke up, and there was a note in 20 euros. <laughs> And sounds like the plot to a Jason on Bourne the other movie. side of the room. <laughs> on the other side of the room? Yeah. How did you get to the money? Did you have to move the bed with you? you- uh, the, well, I had the money in the pocket. The note was by like my arm and then the key. And there was like an arrow pointing to the key on the other side of the room. So I just pretty much had to like drag the bed over to the key. <laughs> <laughs> That what did the perfect. note read? Uh, it, I don't remember exactly, but it was like, welcome to the 529th Ordnance Company, <laughs> you know, best of luck. Uh, you know, we're sure you're going to make a great addition 
by the way, there's 20 euros in your pocket and the key's on the other side of the room. Can't wait to see you. Oh, that's so that was basically your initial counseling session, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> Expectations. What you can expect from me. Yeah. What year was Do you this? think? 2005 still. Oh, man. So, like, the iPhone didn't quite exist yet. Like, how do you, Correct. How do you find a train yeah. station? How do you figure out what train to take? Like, I want to hear... In another language. Yeah, uh, this is the well, to I mean, a Mission Impossible movie where you're given five items and having to figure out why your memory has been blanked for the last five years. Like a really right? shitty escape room. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. No, definitely. Like, I... I think I might have had a cell phone, but it was like definitely not a smartphone at that point. I'm pretty sure I had like a shitty Nokia or something. And I definitely didn't have like service on it because I'd just gotten there. So I didn't have like a SIM card. So that was pretty much worthless. So I pretty much. Like this whole other country. (laughs) Yeah. I pretty much just did pointy talky things, you know, and like like, a really shitty game of like hungover charades because I'm like pointing and, you know, like making gestures to like get pointed in the right direction and I kind of hella tactical like, too like 18 19 just out of here just like the yeah. locals are just like Ugh. what <laughs> the fuck yeah the locals are probably <laughs> in on the joke if that's your stomping grounds it's like every Saturday yeah. the one girl who's wandering every, around town yep everything everything costs 21 euro <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah they're in on yeah, it they just know like <laughs> Yeah, it was only like, it was only like four, I don't know, like 14 euros to get. And so I, I really couldn't fuck this up. There was only, it was 14 euros to go one way. So to go from Nuremberg back to Vilsic Station. So I really, you know, didn't have much uh, room for air there. <laughs> How long did it take you to get back? A uh, couple hours. I wandered around probably for like an hour during Pointy Talkie, looking at signs and then found the Bahnhof because they call it a Bahnhof and then yeah I just looked for the word Vilsic and it's got like a gate and then you just put your euros in and hit Tagus ticket I remember them saying something about Tagus like when we were out at the bar they were saying like really weird things and I was like god that's so strange like why are they saying that like go home you're drunk <laughs> <laughs> we're planting seeds yeah yes. so, I figured did they out. leave you the key for the handcuffs like how'd you they get the did, yeah. Oh, so yeah, the key was on the other side of the room. So I just had to drag the bed because I was that's, that's all you had to do in this hostel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No big deal. I'm surprised you didn't like get out and they were like, Yeah, we know. Go ahead. Yeah. This is what you do. <laughs> so, all the time. Yeah. So, so since you were stationed over there, Rachel, you should educate me a little more on German beer because like basically I've heard it comes in like two varieties right? Like light and dark and light. Yeah. So a lot of times you go out to like restaurants and stuff and they'll associate light and dark. And then they have a couple of brand names, kind of like we have, like, you know, how we have Miller and um, Liney, stuff like that. So they have a couple, um, they're really known for like their Hefeweizens. Sure. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's generally like a light or dark. Uh, but yeah, yeah and a lot of places just do their own, right? Like, it's yep. kind of like microbreweries, but they go back from like, you know, hundreds of years, potentially. It's just the, the inn in town, right? Or did you have a different experience? No, yeah, no, that's definitely like the local beers were the best. That's really the only thing we drank. And uh, 
so not only is the potency generally a little bit higher, like you're sitting at like um, six or seven percent, uh, opposed to like whatever. A lot of ours are like what five, six, four and a half, percent? five, five and a half, yeah, yep, something like that. Um, and then I noticed, I call it more of like a clean beer, but I didn't feel as hungover. Like I could drink a lot more German beer and not feel like dick the next day. Hmm. So. Thanks, Germany. <laughs> <laughs> kind of ruined me a little bit. Yeah, I'm they just curious. Some sodas too, right? Yeah, but rat. I didn't really, I was, I'm pretty sure the only thing I consumed the whole time I was in Germany was straight beer. beer. Yeah, beer, a little bit of liquor. For sure. Tequila. Liquid diet though, mostly, huh? Yeah. Uh, that actually, I can't even say tequila. I enjoyed tequila, but mostly it was, you know, Jägermeister. Ugh. Yeah, Goldschlager. So much I need a minute. I'm going to take a knee. Just just hearing Jäger these days is enough to like. No. Yeah. No. Just... But what about the, what about the, like, I mean, what part of, uh, you said you mentioned Nuremberg and then uh, what was the other city or Bilsack. installation that you mentioned? Vilsack? Bilsek, yeah. So, um, so I was probably shit. I was only in Germany for a couple months. It was so pretty much as soon as I got to the unit, they said we were they were deploying. Um, so we were in the midst of closing down the last ASP. And when I say closing down, I mean like closing down as in relinquishing military control and turning it over to civilians. So this was the big uh, time of conversion where all ammo points and ahas and ASPs were going from military to civilian. Um, and so uh, in that couple months, we d were doing that. And then in turn, we were uh, prepping all our vehicles for line haul for the deployment. Is that like rail yard operations there? What was that? Is, is line haul getting them on trucks or getting ready for a rail yeah. yard or what? Oh. Uh, so, sorry, line haul is uh, essentially we put it on like a train. Okay, so, cool. Yeah. Clean yeah. up. Yeah, those kinds of things. So, uh, we cool. railheaded all of our stuff uh, to, or we line hauled it to the rail yard, and then from the rail yard, we put it on the rail line. And then they shipped it over uh, via boat. Got it. I'm curious about us, uh, like, this might sound ridiculous, but about the people that you met in Germany, like, were there German people, like Turkish people, what, what other European people, or was it pretty? <laughs> yeah, uh, so definitely a large uh, Turkish population, um, and then, yep, and then as far as the base, uh, most of our civilian workers were local Germans, but yeah, very, very heavy Turkish presence, um, and they weren't really a big fan of of us military so i never had any direct run-ins but i know a couple of my battle buddies had a few yeah and then we had a couple of bars that we weren't really allowed to like go to without starting essentially turf wars was that like the turkish or the german population too or was there kind of a difference between more so the turkish population uh, and the germans were just the Germans just enjoyed us because we love blowing our whole paycheck, you know, in one night. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. 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 Gave, gave this to me to give to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> did you did you get to do any like traveling in Europe before you ended up deploying? 
No, not really. Other than Nuremberg, back and forth to Nuremberg, that was it. <laughs> okay. So then you're ramping up to deploy. Um, mm-hmm. Like before my two deployments, I got to go spend, you know, two weeks at home. What happens when you're in Germany? You know, do they send you back to the States or is it just like, well, you're here, so you're going to go? Yeah, um, you were afforded the opportunity to take like a two-week leave, but I just got there, so I said, fuck it, and uh, I just kind of hung out on the base for two weeks, just chilling with my battle buddies, the ones that didn't feel like going home, and we just pretty much drank. That's really, I mean, Germany was kind of a blur, just drank a lot. (laughs) 18, going off to war. So tell us us about the time that you woke up in Iraq. (laughs) Right? Oh. Uh, yeah, so, uh, there I am, uh, 18, <laughs> in Germany, drunk the whole time, and I'm being told, all right, we're shipping out, and, uh, it's gonna be a 12-month deployment, uh, I was going as a munitions specialist, but, uh, as anyone who's served in the army, uh, knows, your MOS means little sometimes, depending upon where and when you go to places, especially earlier on, uh, you might be ammo but as you guys will kind of come to find out I did a lot of other things other than just like ammo stuff so um yeah they we flew into Kuwait yeah I think we we stopped off in Ireland and then we flew into Kuwait and we spent like our I don't know it was probably like a week and a half maybe two weeks uh getting our integration to the weather and doing all of our like live fire exercises and shit and uh, picking what up all were you in there? What camp were you in um, Kuwait? We, I don't, honestly, I don't really recall. I don't, is it, I don't know. Is this still late That's 2005 or what time? Of- yep, it was 2005. Yep, late 2005. And we flew into a camp. I don't remember the name of the camp. But then we picked up our trucks and then we drove out into the desert. Not fucking sure. And we yeah. fell in on a couple like random tents. Camp Beering is a pretty popular one, if that rings a bell. Yeah. Is that where they have, like, their, like, live fire convoy exercise? It's near there. All those ranges are close to Camp Beering. But you you probably went to Ali al-Salam, and then from there, you probably popped over to Beering. That would be my Yeah. Bad. Yeah, that sounds about right. And then uh, and that was at that time. I mean, you were carrying your, you know, your rifle around with you the whole time. And we, I didn't have, like, a super cool combat MOS, so we just had – M16s. We didn't even have M4s. Oh, God. Yeah, we had the old musket. I like to call it. Oh, that's rough. And uh, and then so then we got our like our mission and um, our whole company deployed, but we did like split operations. So the platoons all split up throughout the different sectors of Iraq. We had uh, one platoon in El Tikatum, which is like a marine outpost, and they were doing. Uh, they're running an ASP there and then doing convoy ops up to the northern sector. And then uh, we had another one. I think they were up in like Spiker and they were also doing convoy ops of some sort. And then we were in Taji, which is like 15 minutes ish helicopter ride north of Baghdad. Yeah. When did you get there? What month? Oh, God. I don't even remember. I was there from January until about April, May-ish of 2005. Okay. It was definitely April. Adam, you said you were were at Camp Taji from 
for about the first four to five months of our deployment. And then we shifted down to Camp Liberty in Western Baghdad area. Uh, We started up in Taji. Taji was okay. I mean, that was my thought on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Did you ever? I'm sorry, Rachel, go ahead. Oh yeah. No, Taji wasn't bad. It wasn't, I mean, I didn't think it was bad at all. Uh, We stayed pretty busy. So we actually, um, our mission was to build the, the ammo point in Taji. That was like our company's, or I'm sorry, our platoon, our, our mission. So we fell under uh, a National Guard unit, which I thought was kind of bizarre. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't really fuck with us. And uh, yeah, there was 32 of us. It was me and another female and the rest were dudes. And uh, yeah, we, they dropped off all these like conixes and they were full of munitions from like Desert Storm. And they're like, all right, we're going to build her from the ground up. They dropped off pesco barriers and they were like, have at her. We had a couple forklifts couple PLSs, uh, some E-tools. Yeah. E-tools. And we built that fucker practically from the ground up. Uh, It was across from a detainee camp of some sort. I don't, I wasn't really familiar with their ops, but they had the little prison camp over there across the street. Awesome. Yeah. So, right. My first night in Taji, I should say, this was pretty memorable. Uh, so, all right. So we made it through Kuwait. Kuwait was, you know, whatever. And then we get into Taji and they load us in the back of, uh, what the fuck, like an LMTV of sorts. And they take us off from the uh, flight line to like where we're going to be staying, which were like these Iraqi kind of buildings. I don't know if you guys stayed over in that area or not, where you guys stayed. And, uh, it was probably like one o'clock in the morning because we always flew at night. And uh, I love those combat landings, right? And we get off the back of the LMTV and I have to I have to go to the bathroom so fucking bad. So I like fly off. I'm the first one off the back of the LMTV and I got full battle rattle on and I'm like shimmying over to the fucking shitters and it was dark and I didn't take time to like shine a light in there and I knew better. You know, I spent a couple weeks in Kuwait. I know how it goes, you know, shit covered Porta Johns. So I fly in there and there was like a massive like shit on the ground and like apparently shit on the side of the seat because I ran in it, closed the porter shitter door and while I was like turning I slipped on shit. Mm. Oh god. I was like dropping my <laughs> pants as I was like falling <laughs> so I, like, fell inside of the porter john in shit. Like and I realized oh. shit immediately with my pants down, fly open with the door like Fly open the door with my pants down around my ankles going, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm covered in Haji shit. Oh. And like everyone at the LMTV just stops and just starts laughing hysterically. It was like my first <laughs> night in Camp Haji. So a lot of pants around my ankles covered in fucking Haji shit. Yeah, I find a lot of people like to end their poop story is kind of around that point. But what yeah. happened next? <laughs> like, did, your, did your unit just like hose you down, or was it just like, well, welcome to welcome to twelve month twelve months in Iraq? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, they pointed me in the direction of where we thought there might be some showers, and then I attempted to take a shower. Yeah, <laughs> my battle buddies like offloaded all my gear for me, and yeah, that's a yeah, shitty story. Burn your uniform. I'm, I like woke up in the morning and like they had to go to the TMC and like took my blood and shit to like make sure I didn't <laughs> any fucking those are, disease. Oh, those are okay. significant exposures. Yeah. yeah. Your headlamp. It's like a little yeah. hepatitis uh, from the old yeah. shitter. Right? Yeah. Oh. And so who, what do you do? What do you ball them up in a bag and drop it off at the laundry station or? 
Do you DX the uniform? Uh, yeah, no, I never so went in again. I'm pretty sure uh, that I definitely had like a burning ceremony. We had a barrel outside of our thing, so I just threw it in there. And nice. Yep. Mm-hmm. It That's the right choice. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to do anything else with that. Yeah. For your poo clutter ACUs. Farewell. Hello there in the distance. I see my ancestors, my father. <laughs> oh, we were in DC that time. Taps, please. You had DCUs, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, in 2005 we had DCUs as well. They were still they hadn't switched anybody over yet. It was right towards the end of 2005 they were putting the ACU out. Yeah, I got ACUs. I went I went in December of 2005, and we had yep. the ACUs with the awesome Velcro. Yeah. 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 I should have I should have listened to my buddy. I was I had my last pair of DCU pants, and I was uh, trying to make some like. ECU jorts, so I cut them down real short. But, they, like, but because those cargo pants like are relatively high and so big, and the pockets must show, you know, if you're making a legit pair of jorts, like right. the, the spacing was all wrong, and the like piece of cloth in between was just not sufficient, you know. So I had to, I had to start over on that project. Did you look like Lieutenant Dangle? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> uh, yeah. Like more dangle than dangle, if you. <laughs> Catch my drift. <laughs> wow. Okay. So did, you, did you pick up a nickname from this story, or were you like all of a sudden like the the, the shitty ammo person, or you know something? Yeah, no. Oh, I left unscathed. I had no fucked up nickname. Thank God. Oh gosh. Did everybody just feel there. so bad for you Skid. that they were just like, never mind? <laughs> yeah. Skid. Yeah. Skid. That would have been hilarious. Yeah. No, I was lucky. Completely unscathed. I mean, other than sliding around and shit. But. Safe, <laughs> Taji, like safe, disgusting, but <laughs> no, not okay. Uh, all right, so you're in there, and so you guys are building ideas. this, right? The showers, ammo point. Oh my god, it's not gonna stop. They're gonna come up with 10 more nicknames for you. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's cool. Well, plus, <laughs> I think that that ammo point, you know, weren't you guys uh supporting a lot of people going on into like Sodder City, and that was when Sodder City was starting to spool up a little bit. I think yep. there was an SF group that operated out of that base. Yes, actually, I befriended uh, quite a few of those guys. So, um, so that's, <laughs> yeah, so I was ammo, but um, EOD was like really shorthanded at that time, too. So pretty much what they did was they brought out like an EOD rep in and he showed us how to dispose of our unserviceable munitions. Um, and uh, we, yep, we supported the, that special forces group. I think they were like right outside the gate, too. Uh, but we would, you know, hook them up with their munitions, and sometimes we would even resurface munitions so they could have a little extra. Yeah. Uh, and so um, they'd put on ranges for us, and they'd just come pick us up and, you know, soft bag Humvees, and we'd just go out into the desert and shoot some shit so I got to play some really cool guns that I would have never had the opportunity of being a, a female at that time, so I got to play with, like, MP5s or silencers and Sniper rifles and uh, sawed-off shotguns, M4, which I thought was really cool because all I had was an M16. Um, yeah, there's some grenades and it was a good time. Sounds like a fun time. Yeah. They, the uh, problem there with like your EOD folks is the the road on the west side of Taji is I think it was Route Wild, and you could you you could barely leave the gate there without running into an IED in the middle of the road, and then you're stuck waiting on EOD to roll out. 
And so EOD was pretty busy working out of Taji there. Yeah, well, and so it was really fucked up too because so the mission was to establish this ammo point, but what they failed to mention was it wasn't like fresh ammo. We're talking this was ammo that uh, were probably like conics from like Desert Storm that were just like abandoned and they like found. That's what it seemed like because we opened them and they were obviously like they were just a mess. It looked like somebody had taken these conics and like rolled them over. So that whenever you're opening a conics after movement, it's usually braced. But there was just fucking munition everywhere, like all over the place. Like boxes were broken and they didn't like store it properly. So there was like grenades with five, five, six. So we get like halfway through cleaning out this conics and there'd be, you know, a grenade without like the little pull pin. Still have the spoon mm-hmm. and everything. So, you know, call EOD and I'd have to like stop operations. But yeah, that they were pretty busy off that one route. So sometimes we wait like half a day before we could continue on going through these conics asshole puckered the whole time. I heard high pucker factor, but I missed um, and, and repurposed like Gulf, uh, like Desert Storm era stuff. Oh, yeah. So we were, our mission was to uh, sort through desert storm abandoned munitions and make them serviceable for all the units around. How do you do uh, that? That would suck. Yeah, I can tell, it, you, I can tell uh, you in the medical in the medical field, like sometimes all you have to do to make something serviceable is to get a guy with a higher certification than you to come be like, <laughs> poof, that's serviceable. Yeah. <laughs> How to get deadline Nailed to come it. out the door. Nailed it. Yeah, that's uh, that's what it was. It was literally like us just picking it up and looking at it and being like all right, so uh, is this too much rest or, yeah. And just, you know, opening everything up, counting it because it wasn't wasn't really accounted for. Uh, so putting it all in the books and issuing it out. And so the, my first tour, 05 to 06 there in Taji, we, um, I mostly worked with like ground munitions. Um, we had a couple like different uh, dotics and, NSNs of like some some missiles and stuff, but nothing really like too avionic related is more most our ground stuff. Um, but on my second tour uh, is when I covered the aviation munitions, so that was pretty interesting. But we did we did come across a couple Hellfire missiles uh, on my first tour in Taji. Also, we had to blow a couple of the bunkers. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but Taji used to be an old uh, Iraqi airbase. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird because like to roll out on our missions because we were working like the Sadr City, Husaniya area, southeast of Taji, and we would have to drive through across the Iraqi army side of the base because that was one of their big brigades was there. And mm-hmm. you'd go across to their base and then you'd drive over a, an a engineer floating bridge to get onto like a dirt road, which then would take you kind of out that direction. And so you'd, you'd see all the stuff even that was built up from, from back in the day because their base was pretty retro, you know, not quite like ours. We'd built it up quite a bit by then. Yeah. You guys were heading southeast on Route Wild towards Baghdad at that time? No, we weren't using Route Wild sure. a lot. We used the, that south, southern gate out of Taji and went through the Iraqi army base to avoid Route Wild because you'd never get into zone. You'd uh-huh. never get to, to get do your patrols because on Route Wild, yeah. you just always end up seeing an IED and have to stop. And it was super frustrating, um, especially if like uh, a special operations unit was out there and they found something, then the regular unit, the conventional unit, we'd have to sit on it yeah. and they'd get to go continue their fun. Right. Um, there was some times that we skipped on and didn't do that, but um, there was no sense to use wild. It was just a waste of your time unless you were heading up north to try to go up to Anaconda or something. Okay. 
And but you said you said you were at Taji from like Rachel. I'm sure we'll circle back to, to you know more of your story in just a second. But Adam, I'm curious. Like you were at Taji from uh, January of '05 to June, May, June of '05. Yeah, somewhere in there, probably May. I think we actually came in like February second. Was probably when we actually pulled in. But we drove up. Rachel, you didn't mention how you got in the country. Did you guys drive up, or did you guys take a, a flight up into Baghdad, or how'd you guys get up in yeah, the country? Yeah, so um, we they flew us into Baghdad, and then we uh, Chinook into Taji. Oh, cool. That's another. We platform. didn't even drive. Yeah, no, we didn't get that. We drove up, and then. Everything else is individual except for your last flights. And then we just took C-130s to Kuwait. Yeah. Yeah, Taji was not a bad base. I mean, in the AOs that we worked at the time weren't that busy. So that was where we did most of our community um, engagement and buying off the community and, and doing more of the fun stuff because it was more chill. Once we moved sure. down into Western Baghdad, then it, it was just a different AO. Yeah, yeah. So my my unit during, I was, <clears throat> my first deployment was OIF2 from March of 04 to March of 05. And I stayed on uh, Camp Falcon, fought Parent Huggins for that, for that stretch, but a chunk of uh, Echo, Echo Company 27th MSB, which was reflagged as Bravo Company 515th FSB. And I don't know what chunk this smaller um, subordinate like element that we sent to Taji, what they were flagged under, but they were there from, so there was some overlap, Adam. Uh, between a unit that I was associated with for, from about the that very early part of 2005 until March, you know, late March when we redeployed. So I just wondered if you would have bumped into any of those folks from either Echo Company 27th MSB or who was running your aid station over there or uh, Bravo 515th or you, Rachel, during that time. Yeah, we didn't. Even, yeah. I don't even know if we had an aid station or what we did with that. I was I was on the line and people were relatively healthy at that point. So, so um, speaking I, of aid stations in Taji, I actually. <laughs> Um, I had I had gone into the aid station because I had these weird bumps all over my arm, and when we were working from the ship, was it from the poop? Right, like how many hours <laughs> after? Probably, honestly. Uh, Sorry. We, no, like, we were working with uh, white phosphorus and depleted uranium, so my platoon sergeant was like, "Hey, like you, know, you should go and get that shit checked out." So I ended up going to the the aid station or TMC or whatever we called it at the time, and they actually had to evac me out to uh, Baghdad to the 10th cash hospital that was sure. there at the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I had gotten a raging staph infection and I had a, you know how they say like, if you see like a red line, which is pretty much like your vein, you see it's like all like red and shit and it's going to your heart. Cause you can get a, it's essentially just a doc. If you want yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, there's three of us. So I can't believe we're not just like tripping all over each other. Like, <laughs> me, uh, like Oh yeah. It's like MRSA cellulitis. Oh, <laughs> Uh, so I had a, a staff infection, so I actually had to be medevaced out uh, for a couple days, and then they just did like uh, intravenous fluids. But they definitely had an aid station on Taji. Yeah, I remember where it was. I just, you know, I didn't get to go in there often because I wasn't getting supplied off them or anything. So it was just a matter of you know knowing where they were at, so I could refer my guys for any sick call or anything like that. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of uh, like the immersion type work at them. They were kind of just holding it down, doing the operations you're describing there. Yeah. So you guys got that ammo supply point squared away and hooked we up did. with some cool special forces folks. Uh, you had a couple like wild environmental exposures that are probably going to have some health consequences for you later, Inclu uh, yeah, including like some yeah. fresh, <laughs> fresh Iraqi chemical latrine doo-doo. And yeah. you mentioned 
white phosphorus and some depleted uranium. Oh yeah, ammo point. Yeah, they started bringing in weapons so factories too. So we got to we got to blow some uh, confiscated uh, weapons caches, which was pretty neat as well. Yeah, a couple buddies of mine from the engineers uh, put together like a highlight reel of uh, those sorts of controlled detonations when they would find caches, and it looks pretty cool. But what else did that first deployment entail? Other than controlled debt and playing with special forces occasionally, uh, some pool time. I was a fobbit pretty much on my first deployment. So well, that's not so bad. Cool. What was uh, what was your movement like back to the states, or what did you do from for R and R while you're in country before you get uh, to that? They, oh shit! Um, I think it was that deployment or my second one. R and R was I went to Qatar at one of my deployments. I don't remember if it was my first or second. Uh, otherwise, I just did like the two weeks at home, nothing sure. too crazy. Uh, my first, my on my first deployment, I did go home, uh, which ever since I've I've never gone home again on R and R. By the way, I just travel the world now. Yeah, yeah. I, was <laughs> I did it once, and I was like, eh, no, I'm good, thanks. Especially, especially being stationed in Germany, I'm and already having maybe like some familiarity with the the railways and the EU. Yeah. You know, travel between that, I would just. Like, I don't blame you. I've heard of lots of people doing that. And I kind of regret, you know, when I was deployed, not spending some time traveling abroad rather than just coming home to drink beer in Wisconsin bars. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we wrapped up in Taji and then they moved us down to Liberty for like the last three months. So. Oh, Liberty. Yeah. That's that's where they moved us as well. What time did, what month was that? Or you're Definitely. in 06 now, probably? Yeah, 06, like mid-06. Yeah, we were out of there by then. Yeah. Liberty wasn't bad either. Is they, you know, they had a big PX and Bazaar. They had a big Chow Hall. Yeah. Not Except too much the, I feel like when you say it wasn't bad, you mean it was luxurious. What are you talking about? Like, that Liberty was great. Like, you had everything you wanted there. Huh? But at that point, we had such a high app tempo that we you're just too tired to use a lot of that stuff. I mean, if you had any spare time, maybe you go to the gym and get a lift in or something, but you weren't necessarily dicking around too much. Well, the only time I was in Liberty or, or biop was when we were transitioning. Like we weren't there. You know what I mean? Like we, we were passing through. So we were yeah. barely there, but like what I saw, it was nice. Yeah. 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 In hindsight, looking back, yeah, it was, it was definitely considered luxurious compared to other cobs and fobs that I saw after that for sure. Well, there was a time like right at the end of our tour, once we'd hand over our zone, we still had like a week or two waiting to get on a flight. And so like, we still had all of our small arms with us. So we load a bunch of us up in a couple of Humvees, drive over, hit the green bean coffee shop and get frappuccinos with foam yeah, and then pop cool. over to one of the palaces and actually swam at the pool. And it was just like the, I always tell everybody it was like in Caddyshack when the employees got to go to the pool that day that we just all bailed out and a bunch of idiots running around loose. And all the people who were there seemed like a bunch of, you know, I'm not going to stereotype them. They're probably Air Force officers where it was just like super chill and nice. And then we showed up and just, it was a ruckus. Dude, I remember I got uh, detailed to, I got a, this is such a cherry posting. I got a detailed to be a guard at one of, I can't remember if it was Uday or Kusar, one of Saddam's sons, but uh, like a satellite palace, not far from Baghdad. And my, as my duty for this detail, all I had to do was sit at the front desk and 
uh, like maintain the logbook of DVDs that were being signed in and out. And I got to sleep in the, you know, in the, in like the two man suite with air conditioning and like the mini fridge oh and everything. God. And it was like, <laughs> it was so funny, but it was nuts because, uh, like this knucklehead, these two guys, like, I think, I don't know, I don't want to stereotype, but they had a certain like combat arms sort of demeanor about them, but they're like dunking each other in this big palatial pool. And one of them like hurts his hand and he's like, oh no, look at this. And I'm looking at him like, oh yeah, man, bad news. You got to go get stitches. And they're just like, oh, like our pool is ruined. That'll happen. Souls. Oh my God. <laughs> So, um, so then you're transitioning back to Germany, right? At that point. Yep. yep. And right. then, uh, so was there a couple more months and from there they turn around and, uh, ship me out to, uh, a PCS to Fort Riley, Kansas, the first infantry Ugh. division. I got put in with the, the 601st air support battalion. How was the culture immersion different from the bustling culture of Germany to then Fort Riley, Kansas? I couldn't really tell you because I was there about 30 days before they turned around and put me back on a plane to Iraq for 15 months. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) How did you feel about that? Were you like raring to go or were you like... I was. Oh my God. I was. At that point, I was still living off, you know, the first mob and I was like, ah, fuck it, I got this. And I wasn't seeing anybody and I didn't have anything holding me back and I was like, ah, I'll take a swing at it again. No, it's not Steven's point. Find my neighbor and away I went. <laughs> All right. So then, so you get into country. So was your path into the country any different? Or did you kind of end up, you went through Kuwait, right? And then what same base thing. did you yep. end up at? I'm pretty sure I saw some of the same faces going through Kuwait. Um, and then the only difference was uh, I was working at aviation side. Uh, so this time we were stationed up uh, in Spiker, and since I just finished my first 12-month rotation and with munitions, uh, it was kind of cool because um, there was a couple slots to deliver munitions around the northern sector of Iraq. So we were based out of Spiker, but I had um, myself and a couple other people had uh, crews of different, we had a Blackhawk crew and we had Chinook crew. And then we'd get an order like midday in the afternoon. We'd pull it, inventory it. You do your all yourself, you know, drive the forklift, drive the PLS. Um, and then uh, your A driver got picked up from the ADAG because you stayed there with your truck. You loaded all your own shit onto the bird. Uh, we'd do dinner with whatever crew we were flying with that night. And then we'd deliver munitions around like fucking military Santa Clauses. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So did you get to know a lot of these crews or did you end up working with a lot of the same crews? I did. Yep. Yep. It was, uh, it was a couple different teams that they had kind of like a couple different uh, deliverers. And I was only a specialist at the time, uh, but I had more experience than a lot of people that, uh, that like a lot of them, that was their first tour. So I think that's why I got picked probably over some of the other uh, NCOs and people. Um, that and I, was I, bet really were, I bet you were handy to have around like oh yeah being, being yeah. so fresh from that you know such an analogous experience at that first deployment yeah there's nothing I mean, there's a, like I think I encounter a lot of people who kind of like have this feeling about the army they're like I never got to do my job or I only did my job when I was deployed I'm like yep that's awesome you know but it's just 
so different and so extreme. And, you know, it's cool to develop your competencies to that very high state that's sort of demanded by those extreme situations. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it was, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> it, it was never a dull moment. Like I, you know, uh, the crews are really cool. Like if we were flying in, so if we had Hellfire missiles, which are like the bigger missiles, uh, we would have to take a Chinook. So you put them on an Air Force pallet and you palletize them up. And then um, you get to, you know, flight line and like, I don't fucking know, uh, Baghdad or wherever we would fly, like the different bases. And then as the refueling, a forklift comes and like takes it off. Uh, but we didn't always have that luxury because uh, sometimes, you know, the base would be experiencing like an attack. So sometimes we had to do like these combat drops or like we didn't push the Air Force pallet out the back. Uh, that was new to me. That was that was actually quite the experience. The first time we had to do this like combat drop. Uh, I remember I was talking to the crew chief and he's like, yeah, can't we can't stop. We got to drop and go. Like, we're not even fueling up. We're going to stop at a different uh, fob and fuel up. And I was like, no, no, no. I was like, we got to deliver these. And he's like, yeah, we will, we will. And he's like unhooking the Air Force pallet. And I'm like, and they're like, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, no, no we just got to got to push it off. And I'm like, no, like, you can't just fucking push off like a Air Force pallet full of Hellfire missiles. And sure as shit, we ended up just. So we didn't stop. It was like one fluid movement. <laughs> Wait, you broke up there. You said, so you just pushed it off of the back of the helicopter. Back of the Chinook. Yeah. Just put, that's why, you know, I was talking about the sling loading thing. Like it'd be yeah. more than like rocket, but because the munition was inside of the Chinook, we just lowered the back of the Chinook, slowed down and just pushed the Air Force pallet off the back, like out the end of it. I'm yeah. getting shit, guys. Right? <laughs> <laughs> was there padding on there? Like how? No. You know, oh, so I see like cool. a lone the- little forklift driving out in the middle to try to get this <laughs> thing during the attack. <laughs> pretty fucking much, yeah. <laughs> Is there a combat forklift? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you end up in one, Adam. Painted OD green, and that's about the difference. <laughs> right? Don't ask yeah. questions you don't want the answer to, man. Oh. I'll throw you in one. You barely fit. It's like, yeah, I guess we'll just have to email signatures or something. I was like, okay, sure, whatever. Was, was that one of the moments where you probably thought, like, this is more real than I expected? Yeah, yeah, that was definitely another pucker factor for sure. Yeah, Rachel. Like, oh, at least on the ground, like, the tail is down. Yeah, and we were like rolling, but we just didn't stop. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But at the second time, I was terrified. Yeah, I just don't know what to think that first time. But then the second time, you're just like, please let me hear a clang, not a boom, right? <laughs> right, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So from, like, your expertise, like, how damaged could that stuff have ended up once it hit the ground? Like, what's the integrity of it? I mean, if it, if it lands on the ground, it's all busted up. Is there another ammo uh, munitions oh. specialist that's going to sit there and inspect it and figure out if it's actually useful? Yeah, who signed for it? An Air Force pilot <laughs> looks like, by chance. Have you ever seen one? No. Otherwise, I'll describe it for the audience. So, uh, it, yeah. an Air Force uh, like pallet is it's like a couple inches of steel, and then it's got these hooks on it, and it's just a large slate of steel. So the munition didn't actually like touch the ground itself; it was just on a steel pallet, and it just slid 
And obviously I was like concerned because of the sparks, but Hellfire <laughs> missiles are like, they, they don't just go boom off some sparks. So it wasn't like a really big deal, but. <laughs> so it was fine. It was fine. It's fine. They're all I right. Just, yeah. yeah. I always yeah, think of those like, moments where I'd be handy to have like a helmet camera GoPro or something like that. <laughs> that would have been one of those moments I'd want to see that raw footage. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, it's seared into my brain, so. I enjoy that in a group of, you know, former army professionals, like, <laughs> the, like, munition go boom is still a technically acceptable way of speaking. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So how many hours do you think you logged flying around in Iraq? Uh, a lot. That's pretty much what I did most nights. So you were like flying like almost every single day. Yeah. Oh my God. That's awesome. So you must've seen so much of Iraq from the air. That had to have been amazing. Uh, I mean, we usually only did our missions at night unless it was like an emergency. So, I mean, it was pretty dark most of the time, but yeah. Yeah. It was cool. What kind of emergencies and, did you have to respond to? Uh, just like, like a little, like co- little cobs and fobs. Like if they couldn't wait the day, kind of thing. Uh huh. They be they be so. getting into it and need more bullets, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So that's when we just come in with like um, Blackhawks with escorts. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It. If a recruiter came up to me and was like, hey, you could be an ammo supply person and you're going to spend most of your time in helicopters flying around Iraq doing cool missions all night, I would have been like, you're full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was very fortunate. I would say that, you know, for not being a combat arms or being in a combat arms position, like I just got to do some really cool things and see some really cool stuff. But sadly, after that deployment, <clears throat> that was pretty much the end of the ammo specialist era and their glory in my mind. Cause now really the only ammo like people that are left are like sitting at brigade level doing like projections and uh, mm-hmm. ones that work in like garrison where it's like you get the white truck that shows up and drops the shit off. Like otherwise it's all <laughs> civilian. Right? Yeah. I was going to say, it's not, I feel like it's more contracted. It is. Um, civilians. Yeah. It's a hundred percent contracted now. Yeah, and you look at the one lieutenant who brings back any ammo from a range day, and you're like, "Sir, did they not tell you you're supposed to shoot all of it?" <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I run most of the range ops, yeah, for sure. And I'm like, "Yeah, we will not leave with anything but dunnage." Yeah. So, did you end up staying at the same fob the entire time on that deployment? Yeah. Uh, yes, like out of Spiker the whole time, and then um, the only time we'd ever really go to other. Uh, Bob's Cobbs or bases is if we get stranded there. So that was pretty much I saw Iraq by air and that was my Where is Camp Spiker? It's in like more of the far north sector. I think it's one of the as far as like established bases, I think it was like the farthest north most established base. And this would have been so that was 07 through all the way up until like 09. So it's 15 months. So it fell like in that weird period where I hit all three of those years. Oh, yeah, sure. That makes sense. So, how did you keep, because I did two deployments, both a year long. Like, how did you keep your sanity over 15 months? I mean, 
you were at the same base, but at least you were flying around. So you, you know, you were kind of getting out, so to say, but like, do you feel, yeah. did you get a little stir crazy and stuff with 15 months? Yeah. Yeah. By the end of it, um, uh, cell phones were a little bit bigger. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I might've had one with like a Haji SIM card. And I occasionally would call out but people like, that was still like the time of like phone cards and shit. So people would have to get phone cards, like call me, you know, those days. And, uh, People just kind of stopped calling. I like lost a lot of like friends back home. Like, mm. you know, yeah, I, was gone, I was gone for almost two and a half consecutive years. And it's not like you just pick up the phone and call me. Yeah. So you we're know. back to the challenge Academy and you were telling me about the badass little group of friends you had at that time. <laughs> Getting you in trouble and stuff. <laughs> uh, badass is accurate. You had to be so naughty to go to the challenge Academy. It was like the last, we called the last chance program. Uh-huh. So I had a few things in my records. Recruiters like, don't talk about this, 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 or this. Okay, cool. Good. Cool. Yeah. Those yeah. are those are those skills I find are even more applicable the further you go in life. <laughs> Just learning what not to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's a good so yeah, back, yeah, back to peer groups. Yeah, I, I lost touch with a lot of people after I uh, came back from my second tour. And that's actually when that was like, so I got stop lost a couple of months, like over when I was supposed to be the four years, so it was like four and a half years that I served active. Um, and so uh, the two weeks of leave wasn't really going to cut it for me. So I decided to go IRR for a couple months after, after my second tour. And you're, you're active now too. So you, you kind of slipped off active duty, had some IRR time and then decided okay. to come back. Yeah, and then I had a, I had a, I want to let you know, like I got stop loss too. So I did a four years and ten months of active duty, and okay. I, yeah, I, I ended up doing a national guard hitch after that, and I just wish at that, like looking back on that time of my life, I wish my career counselor would have tried a little harder. You know what I mean? Because if I was willing yeah. to do national guard stuff at that time, like you bet, if you would have just like given me like two exciting things. I would have been like, yeah, man, whatever, whatever, Sergeant Hammer, whatever you want me to do. I like this so, job. Interestingly enough, uh, there was two of us that my career counselor was trying to get to re-up. Um, and it wasn't for a lack of him not trying because he, he got me Japan actually as a next Holy. duty station. Yeah, nice. nice. But I, I couldn't do it. I was like too burned out after that second one. I was I like, yeah. a little too much for me. And, and the, the thought of the two weeks being it, I was like, I, I don't think I can do it again. I was missing, you know, I grew up with dogs, like always having a dog. You know, I was missing that. And God, I hadn't had a functioning relationship in like, I don't know, ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You don't know how that goes. Deployment blindness oh, yeah. and all that good stuff. You're not missing much besides a burner marriage. Right. Save, save yeah. yourself that. Yeah. yeah. All, I got, all, you, all you did I was sit down. <laughs> What'd you say? What'd you say? That's true. I, I, got, I, I, I just got one of those under my belt. So, you know. Yeah. Oh, I, there you go. Yeah. I, you guys uh, know, I, do you guys know what annulments are? What? That logic. You can I, only you know do that in a certain time frame, though. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> if, you're on that, if you're on that first go round, you got six months to just be like, nope, nope, annulled. And it's just, um, it's good on all fronts. Like, it's okay with God, it's okay with the state. Like everybody is just like, just kidding, annulled. So it truly yeah, is. Well, like, well, how many of these have you done? 
There's a Karen. There's a lifetime limit of one, as far as I know, and I'm still at zero. So I have my. Oh. That's my. That's my get out of marriage free card. It's like, honey, have you ever heard of an annulment? Because bam. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you got to just make sure that you don't go to Vegas the week before you deploy on a 12 month right? deployment. Then you, you just you gotta. Then you got to talk really fast, confuse a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, I see. You raise your hand. <laughs> For <laughs> those of you just listening that. along, like Adam's being <laughs> confessional, <laughs> but only over video. Wow. Okay, so now you're you're sitting there on IRR. What was that like? You went from Fort this couch. situation. Yeah, yeah like you're immersed. Yeah. In a, I definitely in, took advantage of that. Uh, what the f- got in a relationship, got out of a relationship, and was like, Oh, and got a dog, two dogs, actually. And then I was like, uh, I went to one IRR, like muster, I think they called it. It's like where you show up in an armory. God, it felt, I kind of, oh, I felt awful. You show up in an armory, they ask you a bunch of questions and then give you money. It feels kind of dirty. Yeah. Like my oh, did they touch you? Like, is yeah. Any- yeah. I got some shots. I got my flu shot and shit. <laughs> Uh, so I did that once and then I was like, yeah, I was like, well, I, I miss army. I miss playing army. I was like, well, fuck it. And then, let me try guard, you know? So I was like, go to, I don't know what I did, but I wanted to reclass. Cause I was like, well, I wasn't going to be munitions. I wanted something cooler. And at this time, I think they were starting to talk about like females in combat roles. <laughs> so when I went back uh, through maps or whatever, um, they offered me an Intel spot or MP. And I was like, and I was talking to the recruiter and uh, they still hadn't opened it. So I was like, well, the next best thing would be MP. It's probably the Hey, that's what thing. I did too. That's yeah. so funny. Like, that's such a funny line, the next best thing. And then the yep. more we talk about maps and the more thinking about it, I do. I just recall the, the recruiter's line like, oh yeah, only in the army are you allowed to pick your job. But then you have this day-long, exhausting mindfuck of a process. And yeah. what they, you know, you're with the, you're with, the first career counselor that you ever meet and they go back and forth with a computer screen. And next thing you know, you're in this like car buying process where it's like, yeah, yeah I'll take, I'll take MP. And then he's like, I'm going to talk to my manager to make sure that's still okay. And you're like, <laughs> what is yeah. going to happen? Am I ever going to get out of here? Yeah. So I, I scooped up MP <laughs> and I decided <laughs> to go guard because guard had like better school benefits at the time than the reserve. Um, yeah. And so away I went and uh, I got sent to the 32nd military police company here in Wisconsin. Uh, little did I company in the state, which is very, I think it's bizarre because like a lot of other states have like battalions, brigades, worth of MPs. We just have a company and then some like random spots around the state, like the state. And truthfully, that's probably too many, huh? Yeah. Kind of something I'm thinking of is you're getting ready to transition. Like when you look back at your active time, how many months were you in garrison and how many months were you deployed? Like how did that balance out? Uh, yeah, I think I maybe spent, like I said, uh, on the way in, I was maybe only in Riley like 30 days before I shipped out. And then when I came back, it was literally just out processing. So good night. Yeah. I, I literally spent out of that four years, two yeah, 27 months deployed. Oh, that's what I was. That's what I was thinking too. Because you had, so you signed a four-year contract, right? And then yeah. got stop loss for an additional six months. So you should be at like 54 months. Yeah. And then yeah. 
you cut that right down the middle, not counting training, but right down the middle of your active duty career at 27 months, that's 50%. Yeah. And you were slinging bullets out of the back of a Chinook and then doing, doing, uh, yeah, doing building ammo supply points for, that's cool. Half your time you were about, you were about your business. Yeah. Which, you know, then, then you walk into this guard or well, you go and you reclass, then you come back to this guard unit where some people haven't done anything. I would suppose, you know, they've done some training, but I can't imagine our living room, bro. Yeah. What was that like as you came back and kind of integrated into a guard unit? Uh, good, bad, and different. Uh, at first, uh, I was looking, I think I was missing that, you know, that camaraderie because coming off of two deployments, you know, I used to having those battle buddies a ride or die, you know? And, uh, when I first came into the guard, they just didn't have that mentality. So that was kind of rough for me. Like a lot of people were kind of like, not about being a battle to each other. So that was like kind of a hard pill to swallow. But Mm -hmm. like you said, yeah, I had, um, I had a lot of experience. I was only a specialist, but the MPs definitely, you know, caught on really quickly to my background and, I might not have been an MP, but I, I got to do a lot of very different things and it was really early on. So things weren't as nearly as regulated. It was kind of like more of like the wild west earlier in the deployment. And so, you know, I had done a lot of training and did do all this stuff. So as far as like teaching classes and getting a team, like I was a, I hopped right into it. Like there's a pretty smooth transition and I actually think I was a pretty good fit for them um, because what I- about that I training piece? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I developed a really good relationship with uh, my training and readiness NCO and um, yeah, they, anything and everything they could send me to training wise. Cause I thought it was cakewalk, you know, it's guard. It's like one weekend a month. I was like, this shit is easy. You know, it's coming off two mobs. Um, so they were sending me all kinds of different like MP schools and um, any, anything they'd send me to, I would go fieldings, uh, you name it. So I got to become really familiar with being an MP and being good at my job pretty quickly. Cause to me, it seemed really simple, you know, mm-hmm. coming off active. So. Tell me more about MP school. Like at what point did you go there and what'd you learn about? What were you, how was yeah. your living? And- so I got to the MP company and they didn't waste any time getting me, um, MOSQ. So they shipped me off, uh, actually ended up going to Fort Hunter Liggett and a reserve, uh, like a reserve outpost. It's like up in the mountains. Uh, Fort Hunter kind of Liggett? Like yeah, Fort Hunter Liggett. Uh, what state is it in? Uh-huh. Yeah, where the hell is that? Uh, up in the mountains by Monterey. In oh, California. California? Yeah. <laughs> like there are mountains in at least two states. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It must have cut out, but yeah, it was. Uh, it's by Monterey, California, and it's just like up in the mountains and there's absolutely nothing there. Uh, it's a pretty desolate place. Reminded me a lot of Iraq. I felt pretty comfortable there, you know. <laughs> that's strange how that's strange how the the alien becomes familiar, huh? Yes, that's a beautiful way to put it. Strange hell. And uh, yeah, I got MOSQ, came back, and you know, hopped right on it. Uh, got my five shortly thereafter, and then um, we got called up to deploy to Guantanamo Bay for a twelve-month deployment. So I uh, got my feet wet with a guard deployment. That was pretty, pretty unique, pretty interesting, working in the uh, detainment camps. Well, Gitmo had to, be a, had to be a special set of circumstances all by itself. Talk about that train up and travel and, uh, you know, mode process, if you don't mind. 
Yeah, of course. Uh, so we went uh, from Wisconsin to Fort Bliss and did our two-week uh, SRP uh, train up in the desert there. Uh, I think it was like Fort Bliss proper and then uh, what was that camp called that we trained at? McGregor? Yeah, McGregor. <clears throat> and uh, the training was awful out of McGregor. They had these uh, like OCTs and half of them hadn't even been to Guantanamo Bay, mind you. Um, and uh, it was just like horribly inaccurate training. Like the training might have been applicable like early on in Guantanamo starting out phases, but it wasn't nearly as wild west as they kind of made it seem. Uh, so we weren't really sure what to expect. We definitely expected the worst. Uh, and, and like the train up to Guantanamo Bay. And then when we got there, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as bad as they made it seem it would be. Uh, and we ran, what's up? I was just going to ask if you were interacting with detainees or. Um, yeah. So, uh, they had like role players and stuff in Fort Bliss. Uh, but when we were in Guantanamo, we actually worked out of camp five and six. Is that something I would have read about in like popular news uh, culture? Or? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, so Guantanamo Bay is this chunk of land that the U.S. initially started like paying and purchasing for. But now we just kind of occupy it, I think. I don't know. God, apparently Cuba stopped cashing the check a long time ago. I don't know. There was a documentary on it. Um, and the 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 way that the island's set up is it's kind of like split into two so it's like uh, it was a joint task force so there's a lot of different branches there navy marines um a little bit of everybody's uh, mixed throughout the island and then on one side of the island is like operations and then on the other side are the detainment camps and that's where prisoners are held on that side so you actually had to like cross over for like from where we lived to the campsite um, so ever not everyone that was stationed at Guantanamo Bay had detainee interaction. Sure. So how many times did you waterboard shake clean water or whichever? <laughs> Definitely far fetched. We there is I mean, there might have been a long time ago, but uh so an interesting fact is uh, a lot of the detainees aren't uh, actually convicted uh that are there. <laughs> a lot of them have like ongoing trials so this is really interesting because i had yeah. no idea um i think we had one one detainee that was actually like convicted um, but the rest were just kind of like going through their trial process so it was really interesting the amount of um entitlements that they had and freedoms and and things that they could could do i guess for being detained it's very interesting i would have never guessed like i said the train up was horribly inaccurate so yeah, so they're in this, like, weird gray legal limbo status, right? They're not convicted. They're definitely detained as enemy combatants. But yep. it, and they're, they're not going through, like, a civilian justice system. They're waiting on, like, military tribunals. But at the same time, they're getting a lot of perks and stuff, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. Like, that's, that's exactly kind of how it was. So it was very interesting. Uh, and we... Like in the camps, you know, we were like considered like the guard force, you could say. Um, so we would, you know, 
take them to different appointments that they would have, whether it was medical or legal. And then if we weren't doing that, then we were on a, a block with the detainees, just kind of making sure that, you know, they didn't hurt themselves or others. And we just kind of observed, really. They got rec times and have rec yards and plenty of space to run around. And some of them had like gardens and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's not, yeah, it's not what you would imagine by any means. So what was their attitude towards you? I mean, did they, because, you know, they're not there because they want to be, right? But I'm sure you guys weren't treating them in a way that was, you know, disrespectful or anything. So what was their kind of attitude towards you guys? Were they kind of nice, maybe? Or can you Yeah, like, so a that? lot of these guys are extremely intelligent. Um, I think we had one detainee that could speak up to seven languages. So very intelligent. Um, and quite a few of them actually had decent rapports with questions weren't hostile. A lot of them were really docile, actually. Um, some of them were funny and would like read books to us and stuff. Uh, so, I mean, we had a couple people that strong beliefs against, you know, Americans and feeling like they were the infidel. And, um, but other than that, I mean, it, it's calmed down a lot. I mean, you hear a lot of stories where, you know, they would splashing, where they would take some sort of body matter of sorts, whether it was vomit or feces or urine, and they'd splash you with it. Um, a lot of that had kind of come to an end. I mean, we still had some of it, uh, but not nearly like what it was early on when, um, uh, what else? I'm trying to think of like, other things I can kind of describe to you guys. Um, yeah, so for those for those folks, if they were just kind of going through that long military justice process, like what was a good outcome? What was a bad outcome? What was the most common outcome? Or were they just all kind of just like moving through as a cohort, you know, just stuck or? Um, a lot of them were pretty, um, how do I say this? They were very like, they'd moved in. You know, like they didn't really foresee themselves leaving. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time that we were there, it was the end of the Obama administration. So I don't know if you guys remember like all the media hype about, how he's like, oh, we're going to close it. Um, and that kind of made some constraints because, you know, they did have some access to like news or, and, and different stuff like that. Um, it was, it was limited, but, um, you know, uh, a lot of them kind of seemed content with staying as weird as that sounds. Cause they, they did have a lot of, uh, you know, amenities and things that they had access to. So um, for the most part, I didn't have anything like too crazy or significant happen, but, uh, but it's interesting because I think to me, like the, the biggest part that I didn't really foresee is a lot of these guys day to day seemed pretty normal. You know, I mean, we deliver their food to them, like on carts and stuff. And, you know, we'd, we'd have conversations with them. You know, they had good and bad days, kind of like we did. Um, you know, so to think like, there are some of these people that did these really awful things, you know, and you, you read that profile and you, and you know them maybe through stories or through historic events, but 
And when you see them day to day, it's kind of strange because it fucks with your head a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's like meeting the boogeyman, I guess, huh? Kind of. Yeah. How's this handshake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What, what kind of amenities and, and uh, liberties and, you know, perks did you have? Were you able to ever enjoy being in the Caribbean or was it just like, were you, yeah. a, were you a gibbo yeah. too? Uh, we we call Gitmo a special kind of hell sometimes because it was a petri dish of, you know, big wigs watching and looking down at what we were doing. So there was a lot of tension there. But cool. Uh, it was no less than 12 hours boots on ground in camp. Um, but if you weren't in camp and you weren't sleeping or eating, yeah, you could go out and you could go to the beaches. I had a couple beaches and really fucking tan. You know, I learned how to swim. I like snorkeling a lot. I got to do some cool things. Uh, we didn't you made get to go it to 2009 island. without knowing how to swim. Yeah, yeah surprisingly, yeah. <laughs> it's a big day, big moment. <laughs> you should have saw me in basic when they made us do that damn pool float. Thought I was gonna die. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the. I must have missed that day or something. Like they went. Yeah, I didn't have that day either. They just. We just got rained on. That was the water training that I got like that was the you know aquatic stuff that I did yeah so it was so it was like this weird contrast of you being able to like go out to the beach and swim in the ocean and then dealing with these detainees that are stuck you know not being able to do any of that was that like was that kind of a weird conflict or situation for you or was it just something that you learned to just kind of accept it was just something you kind of learned to Except, so there's this, all my years of service, uh, and the military are really good at justifying things, right? Like, stuff that we've done or seen or been through, we're like, yeah, it's fine. It's not a big deal. But, like, in hindsight, sometimes when you tell ground, uh, you know, they're like, whoa, like, that's insane. Like, so by day, you know, you swam in the ocean in this in the Caribbean it was beautiful 12 plus hours with detainees that did acts of terrorism like yeah and so for me like I don't think it's a really big idea like big deal or it's like really all that crazy but then I realized I'm just really good at justifying things like there hasn't really been anything that I've done that like at the time I was like oh my god this is super super like insane but looking back and like telling people now or like, you know, talking, starting to talk about like some of the stuff I experienced, like, I'm like, damn. Yeah, I guess when you put it like that, that is kind of crazy. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of heavy that you were dealing with that situation. How do you compare like your deployment in Guantanamo to like your deployments in Iraq? Um, I don't really compare them, honestly, just because they're, they're so different. I mean, and they were in different really time frames. I mean, when I did Iraq, I was, I don't know, from like 18 to like 22, like I was deployed a lot of that time and it was in Iraq and it was just a different atmosphere. And then when I went to um, Cuba, I'd been in the army for almost 10 years at that point. Um, and I don't know, it was with the guard, it was just different. So I don't really compare the two. 
Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's like two crazy different worlds, right? So you're in the military and then you end up deploying to Iraq and experiencing one situation and you do another deployment and it's just insanely different and oddly connected, right? Because you're dealing with detainees that potentially could have come from Iraq. Yeah. And some of the, the scenarios and situations and stuff. Um, and then, and then now there's Ukraine and now I'm here. <laughs> so what was your, so then you got back from Guantanamo Bay. Um, yep. Then what was your transition like back to civilian life again? I mean, it sounds like you've spent these times where like your national guard, but at the same time you were doing a lot of stuff that had you on active duty. Yeah. Um, so like, what is it like when you went from doing that to now it's just one weekend a month? Uh, I find myself missing active a lot, surprisingly, which is uh, partially why I volunteered for this deployment that I'm on now. So I'm not here with my organic unit. I volunteered to come over on this deployment. Um, knowing that it would be kind of a unique mission and a different group of people have been in the MP company my whole guard career. So like 10, 10 years, almost 10 years, a little under 10 years that I've been in the guard. And so, um, you know, I just thought this was a really unique opportunity to get back over to Europe, uh, totally different mission set. And I was under the impression that I was going to be teaching like military police stuff. So I thought that would be a really good opportunity. It's one of like our metal tasks, our basic tasks is host nation training. So um, mm. that's kind of why I volunteered for uh, this deployment. So yeah, you guys had asked me uh, like how I kind of compare the two, or not the two, the multiple deployments uh, to one each other or to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two Iraq deployments, I, I definitely did quite a bit of comparison. Um, but as far as, you know, going... Uh, guard and cuba to iraq not so much uh, but now having um, ukraine under my belt i do definitely uh, compare cuba to here from time to time and the different similarities yeah so in in the ukraine you said as part of your mission essential task listing uh training host nation forces is a is a big part of that but you're not exactly doing that or or you're yep so so initially like so this deployment is not with my organic unit. Um, my organic unit is the 32nd military police and I am here with the 32nd IBCT infantry. Um, so not my unit. <clears throat> and I volunteered because I wanted to do my metal task, like I said, which is host nation training. Um, and it's more of a, we're doing more of a, like a mentorship type deal here. <laughs> it's kind of hard to describe, but, um, so we are going over stuff, but it's at a higher level. So it's not so much like company level stuff. It's more like the higher echelons of, of training and mentorship that we're going over now. So I do get to do some of my MP roles and, and tasks as far as like advising, but we're not actually like training. So it's, is, are there a lot of officers there kind of learning how to move battalions and brigades around? Is that like a lot of sand table, a lot of, logistics and comms exercises and stuff like that yeah yeah exactly cool well that's that's got to be neat to see kind of that you know higher level of analysis that training that those folks are getting yeah absolutely i i've spent most <clears throat> not most all of my career at a company level so this is like my first taste of experience at like a staff level or a brigade and battalion level so i want to know that from well 
Are you still a sergeant or are you staff sergeant now? Staff sergeant. Um, and are you hopefully looking to get my summer first class here in the next year or so. Yeah. Awesome. And you're, it sounds so obviously you've matured, uh, you know, to the point you're at, like in this mid career sort of phase where you have enough experience and visibility to sort of manage things for yourself. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not near where I would like to be with my career, but it's kind of just the way the chips fell. I mean, so I had mentioned that there's only one MP company in the state. So anybody that's ever served guard can relate when I say there were people in leadership that were stagnant for a very long time. So it's more of like a, you wait until either they die or they leave. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's, that's looked like a five or six year window and some gaps. So I've, I've been an E5 for a very long time and, um, I got my six and now I'm just kind of waiting for, you know, one of four platoon spots to open up to get that summer first class. Cause guard is based off of slots on like army and army reserve, which is not based off slots. So someone has to die or leave for you to get promoted. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And I think a lot of people can get frustrated uh, if they think of that as like a comment on their competence rather than just kind of like a systemic slowdown of the promotion process right yeah it's it's sometimes it's really frustrating for me um because i you know i i've done a lot i've seen a lot i've experienced a lot i have quite the military jacket but you know a lot of times they just kind of see like a a female staff sergeant and they're like okay you know so getting past that initial bias and, and really getting out there and sharing all the shit that I've done and learned. Yeah, you bet. It sounds like to me that earlier on in your military experience, your, your attitude was like, fuck it, let's have an adventure, you know? And luckily it kind of, you might kind of made it serve you well after some, some really novel experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where that justification thing kind of came into play too. Like I'm learning. Uh, so I've been in, uh, 15, 14 years, this January, I don't know, somewhere in there. And uh, I have never, I never went and like sought counseling or anything like that. Cause you know, that military stigma, ah, you get help, you get, you're weak, you know, or they're going to use it against you or, or whatever. But um, after, after Guantanamo Bay, uh, it was like probably like nine months after, give or take, I really realized it, like realized that I was kind of starting to struggle and I hadn't really talked a lot about um, my Iraq tours and, um, you know, and Guantanamo was its own kind of special hell in a sense. So um, it was interesting because it wasn't until I started kind of going to counseling, which was a big prideful step. It was very difficult for me to do that. I kind of learned that, you know, I, I'm really good at justifying things, but that's also what makes me really good at what I do and how I can deploy and go through all these deployments and come back, you know, relatively sound of mind and body. Cause, cause if I really thought about some of the stuff that I'd been through, I don't know, that's a big pill to swallow, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> just listening to you tell stories about like dumping ornaments out of the back of a, of a Chinook that's just doing tap and go. And you're just like, not even having time to process it, no time to be scared, right? Like getting through those motions and then coming to that point where it's 
but getting through those moments and then coming to that point where you're able to like recognize like wait a second something's something doesn't fit you know what was it that stood out that made you kind of realize that maybe talking to somebody or making a change was something you needed to do honestly my mom uh i had <laughs> i didn't see it at the time i didn't think it was but i had a lot of ptsd after my first two mobs and I mean, there was a lot of stuff I experienced that I didn't necessarily touch on the podcast because that is something I'm still like trying to work up uh, to talking about and being more casual about. But like I came home after Guantanamo Bay and, uh, you know, I had some like anger issues and stuff. And I was talking to my mom one day and I got mad at her for something really, really ridiculous and small. And I like kind of started yelling at her kind of like an asshole. And she just stopped and she looked at me and she said, honey, are you okay? And I just started bawling. And I was like, well, fuck, maybe, maybe I'm not like, why am I so angry? I'm home. You know, I've got everything that I want. Like, why am I so pissed off? So it was actually kind of my mom. And then, you know, um, I talked to a couple of close friends that I've had over the years. And I was like, hey, question, like, you know, and I just asked him a couple things that my mom had pointed out. And they're like, yeah, dude, like, that's you. And I was like, oh, shit. So um, I did a little research and I stumbled upon uh, the vet center. Uh, they had actually came to our, like, yellow ribbon ceremony, which is what they do uh, in the guard when you get out. Uh, it's like a 30, 60, 90-day program or whatever. It's just like a reintegration tool. But um, uh, I remember they had came and they did this presentation. And really the only thing I took from it was – uh, the VA couldn't access records. So your unit wasn't going to find out. And I was like, shit. Uh, and I had initially, I had tried going to the VA. Um, and it was just, it was really difficult to navigate. And I found myself really frustrated. And to just talk to somebody, it seemed like I had to jump through like fiery hoops. So that's when I was like, fuck it. I'll just try this vet center thing out. Uh, and I went to that and I've been going ever since and it's like the greatest thing like I'm actually learning a lot about myself and can see myself doing my full well 20 probably and beyond years isn't that funny that's such a all these double-edged swords we keep running into like you learn yeah. something about yourself and then you got to take a moment and be angry that you didn't know it before and you come right? back and like start implementing those changes you know yeah but yeah it made, cool. it made me a better person for it for sure so the vet center is actually where Rachel and I met yeah. um, and we ended up going out for beers at one of the oddest named bars that I've ever heard of chicken licks. Oh, uh, and we, oh the, God, yeah. the food. <laughs> uh, Shout we ended up to Steph, the there. bartender. <laughs> yes. 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 She is awesome. Um, we ended up staying there until like two in the morning talking about <laughs> when they make you leave right karen that's when they yeah, kick yeah. You out. <laughs> yeah, they're like yeah. they, don't, they don't let you yeah. they don't give you the option to stay after that point that's how i understand yeah. it <laughs> yeah they're like you need to go um but we and it was just the oddest thing because our timelines were so close to one another and you know the events that we had gone through in the military um and i think it's interesting too because and you can speak to this a little bit rachel but like me as a female it was harder for me to go to the vet center for counseling because it was almost like um, you don't like there's a stigma right that being a female you're weaker already and then yeah. the stigma of like oh if you need counseling you're you're weak for that too right 
So it was yeah. almost harder for me to even get there because I felt like it was a, a twofold situation of the perception of just going to counseling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's yeah, I was really against it. And, and honestly, like, um, I don't, I don't know. But, and, and then once I started going to the vet center, then uh, they have some other additional programs you can do through like the vet center, like groups and stuff. And it was also really funny because I was so against like gr a group setting of any sort. Uh, so I worked with uh, my counselor and she kind of just kept bringing it up casually. And I'm like, yeah, I was like, it's impressive that I'm even here. Like, there's no way you're going to get me to go to group. Um, and so uh, she kind of kept chipping away. And, and I said, fuck it one day, I guess I'll just give it a shot. And I ended up going. And again, it wasn't that bad. But no. Uh, I say that lightheartedly because not all groups are well put together and well ran. So sometimes it can be a fucking shit show. I've never I've had a, yeah. Adam, could you comment on that? Like within, within the bounds of your profession, you know, like what kind of variation exists? Like, is there good energy among certain groups? Like what's, what's the big draw between individual, you know, sessions for some folks and like just, I don't know. I'm just curious about it. It's not something I've ever touched on besides just like getting together with organic groups that just so happen to coalesce around certain activities most of the time. Yeah. Um, I think it, Rachel hit the nail on the head that even her sitting in the room, like taking the group in the facilitator at the other side of the table sometimes is, is aware of it and knows that it's running away. But at some point you can't predict who's going to come into group that day. You cannot predict what somebody wants to talk about that day. Some people will take over the group. Some people will shut down. Uh, it's, it's just one of those things to where different facilitators are going to have different styles as well. Some will be really quick to pull it back on topic. I know I lean on the side that I let it go for a bit. You know, let's see what else comes out of this. What else can we learn? Um, but that's where matching comes into play. Like, uh, 70% of your therapy outcomes have to do with the relationship you develop with the person you're sitting with. And so groups are not that different that the, the best groups are the ones where the same people show up every week and it kind of can get cohesive. But if groups aren't like that, it's really hard to build any type of culture. And sometimes you can go in there and just have a group. that's not that great. And sometimes that happens. And, that, and, you, and you're saying that happens like the same thing could happen with an individual and a counselor too. Like it's not that maybe if I was experiencing some kind of trouble it's not that counseling is not appropriate uh, for me or that particular intervention style. It's just maybe I didn't have good rapport with the, the facilitator. Totally. Totally. I mean, not everybody's meant to be together, right? Not everybody's going to mesh and understand each other. And so that's one of the, I think the greater challenges for VA, you know, if we look at it objectively is that you don't necessarily get to, to shop as a consumer for your, your therapist. Like you go to a vet center, you kind of get what you get. You get whoever's, you know, next man up in the totem pole or next person up in the totem pole. And you maybe can like, you maybe can bump around a little bit more. I think a vet center is going to have more flexibility, but in a VA hospital setting or even maybe some of the other managed care clinics, there's not as much um, leeway to kind of getting the right fit. I think it's, there's a movement today due to the insurance companies and things like that. And even VA that can come off like a managed care thing is that um, the facilitator needs or the therapist needs to adjust their style to better fit the client. And so a lot of the different therapy styles are probably adjusting towards things that are more what you might call person centered or client oriented. And so that it's, it's more about the person. So that's, that's helped a lot in the system. But at the same time, if you don't feel safe in the room with the person you're talking to and you don't trust them, it's not, it's not going to work. Sounds like a non-starter, you know? 
So how much like the words of encouragement, let me just close this out. The words of encouragement I would say is, you know, Rachel got in the door and got her experience and, you know, all of us have gotten in the door and gotten our experiences. Um, but don't be afraid to shop. Like if you get, if, if, if you go to an agency and they pair you with somebody and it doesn't work, you know, give it a couple sessions, but at some point know that you can say, Hey, that's, this isn't working for me. I'd like to try somebody else. Hey, just as it relates to like mental health issues in general and, and staying well in that sense, how much does the VA and the military family and the vet center and organizations like that, how much did those folks or this community, how much did those, those people lead the way when it comes to those sorts of things? Oh man, that's a big question. Uh, so I'm not going to speak on behalf of the VA or anything like that, but I think that I would guess what the VA does really well is uh, they know the military culture. At least they try harder to get there. I don't think your typical civilian agency is going to mandate military cultural competency trainings or anything like that. They're not going to highlight the veterans in the workplace as much. So like the vet center, one of the perks of the vet center is more often than not, the therapists are, are veterans themselves. And so that's an appeal too, is that there's already some shared experience there where um, that's what I would say in our population might give VA vet center and things like that, a bit of a leg up. Is that culturally specific sort of ability to, to communicate all that, all the synergy that sort of comes with that suite of things? Yeah. And they're trying, they're leading the way. I think OAF, OAF was a generation that really pushed a lot of these changes or, or not that that's the generation that pushed the changes, but that was the generation that was the impetus for change that all of a sudden there's just loads of vets flooding the system and we got to adapt quickly. And different vets, younger, younger vets, you know, I, mm-hmm. I still, uh, I have used the VA since I got out of active duty. That's um, generally uh, where uh, I'm starting to have some like medical conditions from my earlier deployments uh, now already. And so um, I've been receiving care at the VA and yeah, it's, it's, it's very different. Um, and like he said, advocate for yourself, like, you know, definitely give that physician or that therapist or that counselor some time. But if it's not, if it's not a good fit, it's, it's okay to, to, you know, look for a different provider there in the system if you can, or, or to transfer. Cause it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's different. And I, I myself like personally found it kind of difficult cause I felt like uh, initially um, I've changed providers probably like three times. Uh, but the first two providers that I had, they kind of just, you know, um, I, I needed a little more follow through care. Like, and I just didn't really seem to get that continuity. It's kind of like, I don't know, for whatever reason, it just didn't, I don't know. It was tough to navigate. It was really tough to navigate and to get that longevity type care. I mean, I went in in my late twenties to start receiving like medical care for um, uh, an autoimmune disease that had popped up and it was just, you know, I just don't think that my doctor was like prepared. I don't know. It was so weird being so young and I just felt like, you know, it was very short, quick in and out take these pills, go on your way. And it's like, you know, this is a lifelong condition for me now. Like, you know, (laughs) I'm going to be coming here for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, Adam, I can certainly relate to what you, you said about feeling confident that the VA is all systems go for cultural competence and that the people there really are sincere and support the mission of supporting vets. But 
those longitudinal relationships and the primary care, uh, certainly, certainly it has to be challenging on both sort of sides of that coin to build those longitudinal long, you know, relationships and manage some unusual stuff, some population specific stuff that includes environmental exposures that other people wouldn't have. But I'm just really interested uh, in a lot of the aspects of your story, Rachel. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what, as part of your daily mix, do you do in addition to sort of like the things we just talked about? Like, what do you do on your own to make sure you're staying fit between the ears and, and in, in your body and, and, you know, spiritually and everything else? Yeah. Uh, so like I had mentioned, the vet center has helped to give me a lot of tools to function outside of that, you know? So I, I do my growth there, but then, you know, um, they've helped me to, to kind of uh, help foster an environment when I, when I don't go there. So what I've kind of done here is I uh, kind of started uh, like, or been working towards like advocating for groups. So I, you know, have been trying to get our females together to like talk about things. Um, I'll get, uh, I work uh, closely with like our medics and stuff. And, you know, I like to, uh, like co-mingle training so that you know you're learning things outside of your own scope and just and taking that and so just um you know helping people foster good relationships with each other and working on that and that's kind of you know how I've expanded the stuff that I've learned throughout that into what I'm doing here so just having groups uh, get-togethers check-ins like hey you know so this, this COVID thing, I mean, a lot of us are spending a lot of time alone and with social media, which good, bad, and indifferent, you know, but you're left with a lot of your own thoughts. So those, yeah, those two things, uh, <laughs> adding nothing else is like a recipe for disaster for me. I just, you know, so it sounds like you're doing a great job of like building and strengthening your own communities over there in a, in a, you know, uniquely constrained situation in a foreign country. Yeah. Yeah. You're only as strong as your weakest link, which I'm sure you guys have heard, but so, you know, helping others and being there for others is, you know, also very helpful for me and the good of the group here. You bet. Absolutely. How long, how long, how much longer do you have left there? Um, we're looking probably at like August time frame ish somewhere in there. We should be back. So we have to mention when you get back, you are also going to be getting your motorcycle out of storage and we have to yeah, talk about right. how freaking awesome your motorcycle is. <laughs> yeah. I, um, like most others, I learned how to ride motorcycle without my license and permit. Oops. Um, but when I decided to get legit, um, and purchase like a, my first real nice motorcycle for myself, I decided to do it the right way. So I went to, Harley when they're offering uh, free riding lessons to like vets and doctors and policemen and stuff. And uh, so I went through the Harley course there in Madison and, uh, and then I started my, my bike hunt and uh, I actually wandered into an Indian store and there was this bike. It was uh, an Indian scout 60. Um, and yeah, I purchased it, beefed it up. I'm a big advocate for the Army as a whole, so I 
had it OD green with a big white star on the side of it and um, had the black matted out and tricked it out and I made it look like the old school uh, Harley Davidson from World War II. So the bike is currently being stored at yes, Harley Davidson in Madison. Correct. Yeah. I, uh, so a bunch of uh, my fellow people that were deployed also had motorcycles and uh, they were all storing at Harley. And when I went through the course at Harley, they were like, Hey, yeah, you know, for, uh, for vets, we put up your motorcycle for you for free while you're gone. Uh, and so I gave him a jingle and I was like, Hey, I'm moving up you guys, you know, and they're like, yeah, bring it on in. So I drove her on in and they were kind enough to, to watch her for this year while I was gone and, you know, keep her in tip top shape for me. So shout I out to story. I have a similar story. I had a, uh, a car, a personal vehicle when I was on active duty and right before I deployed, I dropped it off at my dad's house and I was like, dad, I know this is a 1991 Chevy Cavalier, but it's been garage kept by a grandmother for the last 13 years and it only has 60,000 miles on it. So can I leave it with you and will you get it like regularly maintained and exercise it once in a while? And he's like, sure, <laughs> no problem. And I came back and he was like, yeah, I took your car to the shop the other week. First time I've touched it. And the mechanic said all the seals are blown and it's not worth keeping. So you need a car. <laughs> oh, no. Damn. So, okay. So yeah, that's Thanks. my. Uh, where were you? Where were you for me, Harley? <laughs> well, I remember getting back from deployment. They had us put all of ours in like an airplane hangar in the middle of nowhere, California, and so they were. We had like uh, air compressors that we were pulling around, just airing everybody's tires back up. We had to jump all the vehicles. There was absolutely no maintenance at all, and those it was just awful. They did the same thing in the motor pools on Fort Hood. There's just when a unit deployed. They just like put triple strand yeah. concertina wire around a <laughs> around a pile of personal vehicles in the middle of it. It's just like yeah. good enough. <laughs> yeah, that's one bonus of the guard that I noticed. It was nice. Yeah. yeah so, do you think you'd ever go back to active duty? Because it seems like there's a lot of it that you missed, you know. And you volunteered to go on this deployment to Ukraine. Would you ever go back? Yeah, actually, I'm kind of tossing the idea around right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. There it is. Recruiters. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I like, I gotta thank you. I feel like you told some awesome stories here and definitely talked about, um, you know, good ways to reach out and get help if you feel like you need it. And um, I think both of us have had the same experience at the vet center where it's like, um, we're able to connect there because it's, I think it's all veteran counselor. I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I know the person that we talked to um, is a experienced veteran and um, yeah, it just, it makes it so much easier to connect. And I think it's a really, um, you know, healthy place to go if you need help, um, you know, dealing with some stuff and talking some stuff out. Yeah. And you know, it's not going to go anywhere, which is nice, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for, for us that want to, you know, continue to serve and, you know, continue to work on ourselves. It's, it's a really good resource for that. I appreciate that. Continuing to serve while you continue to work on yourself. That's a, that's a great mm -hmm. thought. And I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Well, we need well, advocates that give that message out. So thanks. Yeah. And I appreciate your guys' podcast. I think 
you know, I want to take a second to thank you guys for having me on so early on in the game. And I definitely continue to, to share with my battle buddies and my friends and coworkers. And so, yeah. Thanks for the thank promotion. You. Yeah, of course. It's definitely great <laughs> hearing about some of the experiences you've had. That sounds really fun. And I appreciate the, the stories for sure. Thanks. And if you need any company, once you get back on that motorcycle, let me know. I ride with Combat Veterans Motorcycle Association. We could probably get a herd of us to ride you back up home. Oh, that would be awesome. The rapid fire, it's only like six questions. No um, version of gotcha journalism. What is your favorite MRE? I don't have one favorite. I have like a genre. I like the breakfast ones. Including the vegetarian omelet? Ooh. Okay, not the vegetarian omelet. Thank you. That's the I was only just vegetarian concerned. one I don't like, actually. Interesting. I was concerned for your health is all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like this um, is the time where you should take a video of yourself eating one of the breakfast MREs and then just tag us on Instagram or something. Uh, I actually had one. I wouldn't say necessarily for funsies, but here is the leftover remnants of it. Ooh, granola. Oh, granola. Hey, granola with milk and blueberries. Yeah, that actually it's, sounds uh, delicious. Dehydrated. It's actually really good. I like it. It was in my beard. Come a long ways. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, yes. The old school MREs were not that good. So, what was the worst thing that you ate while you were in the military? Could be basic training. Could be on deployment. Uh, I ate a spider once. We were like in transition or something, and I did a, a barter system with some Blackwater guys and we had a bottle of Johnny Black Label and so I was in, extremely intoxicated and we were trying to fight camel spiders and scorpions which they don't really fight fun fact they like hide on the other side of the can from each other anyways long story short we finally killed them because they weren't fighting and then the bat started and so I ate some camel spider how big was the camel fact. spider? Uh, it was like a part of a camel spider. It wasn't the whole camel spider. Okay. You watched it How down did it taste? Johnny Walker Black Label. I don't know because that's all I could taste was, yeah, the Johnny. <laughs> Probably a good thing. Well, that's a fun fact about Taji is there's a South, there, at least when I was there, there was a South African compound there and they may or may not have been allowed to have more stuff in their compound. Yes. And yeah. They may or may not have been a black market for that. Yes, that in states. I literally just had a friend mail me alcohol and no one ever caught it. It was, <laughs> it was just, like initially we would put Jack Daniels in a Coke bottle. And then the next time she just mailed the Jack Daniels bottle and like, nobody, I got it perfectly fine. Nobody caught it. It was great. I was like, okay, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> what was your most uncomfortable mode of transport? Ooh. Uh, Five ton when I was in Germany. We'd take the tank trail back and forth from Graf to Vilsic. Or, yeah, Graf to Vilsic and uh, yeah, five ton. Like the old school deuce and a half. Like, oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That sounds miserable. That's actually like, that's actually eerily accurate for how those uh, things sound. You're just like, that's the <laughs> truck noise. <laughs> yeah. You really had to like abuse the shifter. <laughs> Okay, what was your highest and lowest PT score? Oh, girl. Like I said, I was a stud in basic training. Uh, 
I didn't get to walk with the formation. I had to run around it. And when we were stationary, I had to do push-ups. So I definitely was extended scale 300 all the way through basic and AIT. I don't know what. Can I, can I just ask you, like, what got you kicked out of your formation that you couldn't walk? You had the PT around it. Oh, because uh, that initial PT test you take when you come in. Uh, you did too I, well? I did too well, yep. And they're like, oh, oh, you think you're good at PT? I'll fucking show you, Friday. You think you're good at PT? You're going to be fucking great at PT. Not that one. <laughs> nice work. Here's 10 weeks of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Uh, okay, what have you spent the most time doing since you've been under quarantine? Ooh, eating? Yeah, I'm fucked. <laughs> the I'm polar opposite of the PT story you just told. What was that? I said the polar opposite of the PT story you just told. Yeah, well. It's know. a recovery quarantine. It's bulking season anyway, right? Bulking season. Yeah. Yeah, bulking. Like if I'm pushing out my arm. like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was it. Rapid fire is over. <laughs> well thank you again rachel we really appreciate you sharing your story today um and yeah we wish you the best of luck over there and we look forward to seeing you when you get back in august sounds good yeah great to meet you hope to catch up when it's all said and done yeah absolutely we're gonna have a party at chicken legs when i get back so oh man i will be there i'll, I'll bring yep. there and i'll sponsor a big tab yes this is recorded, Will. This is this recorded. Is recorded. <laughs> yeah, I heard it. Hey, so we'll set up a separate GoFundMe for. Her. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, thanks, guys. Take care. Stay sane during this uh, lovely time, and uh, yeah, we'll chat soon. Yeah, you, you too. Appreciate well. it. Fighter Thank die you. guitars. <laughs>